0: This is a podcast from 3RR102.7FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And just over 200 years ago in 1815... The Mount Tambora or Gurung Tambora volcano in Sumbawa, Indonesia, erupted, releasing megatons of sulphur into the stratosphere. The massive eruption didn't just devastate Sumbawa, it changed the world's weather pattern for several years afterwards, including in Europe where the weird, dark, wet European summer of 1816 prompted what is, prompted what is often called the first science fiction novel, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And uh, to talk more about it, James Driscoll, uh, Dr James Driscoll, school from monash university's school of earth atmosphere and environments here uh he's part of an event called three years of winter the scientific story behind shelley's frankenstein and it's coming up this week and pretty cool story James. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so, um, for those that don't know, um, remind us how that volcanic eruption inspired the story. Yeah. So
1: um, in 1815, it was you know, nice and getting nice and quiet in Europe. You know, Napoleon had just been defeated in the uh, in the Napoleonic Wars at Waterloo, um, and everyone was expecting some nice peace and to reign over Europe. Um, but unfortunately, Mount Tambara um, in um, in Sumbawa in Indonesia erupted uh, that year. Um, and and it spewed a whole load of ash and um, uh, and rock, uh, but in particular, a uh, sulphur in sulphur dioxide into the atmosphere. Um, and basically, that sulphur dioxide um, kind of reacted with uh, water vapor in the atmosphere, caused little aerosols or droplets of um, well, basically, sulfuric acid. Um, and that act is those aerosols acted as a little bit like a blanket over the Earth, um, and it meant for the next few years um, uh, there was uh, a lot less solar radiation reaching reaching the earth. Um, And it basically meant that uh, yes, there was no summer in many parts of the world uh, for a couple of years, um, including 1816 when the summer disappeared in Western Europe for the whole year.
2: Wow. So how, I mean was that an occurrence that that kind of happened, was was it common throughout history that a volcano erupted and had that significant an
1: effect on on the climate? Yeah, well Mount Tambara was uh, a pretty big volcano. Uh, It was a very big event. Um, It was even bigger than Krakatoa. So we used this thing called the volcanic explosivity index and that measures the amount of ash which goes into the atmosphere uh, based on volcanic eruptions and um, so to give you an idea uh, Krakatoa was a six and Mount uh, Pinatubo in the Philippines in the 1990s was a six but Tambora was a seven which basically meant over 100 square uh, sorry 100 cubic kilometers of ash went into the atmosphere uh, plus um, a hell of a lot of uh, sulfur dioxide so these VEIs of seven or more are quite rare there's probably mm. one every thousand years or so um, but but Mount Pinatubo certainly had an effect on the Earth's atmosphere as well. Temperatures dropped by uh, about a half a degree, 0.6 degrees Celsius for 18 months after um, Mount Pinatubo erupted in 1991. So they are, they're quite, volcanoes can have quite an impact on the weather um, and on the climate. Um, but these really big ones really do have a big impact. Mm. That's right.
0: Yeah, it's an extraordinary story. And so this idea that it's, when we say no summer, was it, was it
1: dark? Oh, it wasn't so much dark, but it was, it, it was pretty wet, uh, and it was pretty cold. It was about three, three and a half degrees Celsius on average cooler that summer. Um, and I know that, um, I can't remember the exact quote, but Mary Shelley in 1831 wrote that, um, it was pretty dismal. There was nothing they could do. It rained incessantly. Um, and so basically what they did is they stayed indoors for the whole summer. Um, she was in a relationship with, um, uh, Percy Shelley at the time. Um, they were a bit naughty because he was actually still married. Um, so kind of. Of, uh, kind of frowned upon back in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, they were pretty ostracised, um, and so they uh, they spent the summer. Um in Lake Geneva, uh, on Lake Geneva, sorry. Um, and there was nothing to do really. So they just told each other, um, ghost stories and, uh, they read from German horror books, uh, and that gave the inspiration behind, uh, Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein. And also, uh, for one of the, uh, the other participants in that trip, he wrote a, uh, story about a vampire, um, and that ended up being inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula. So, um, it was a pretty, um, intense, uh, literary, uh, literacy writing, I think, uh, back then, um, because of the, uh, that they couldn't go out to yeah,
2: amazing that, that those two stories came out of that incredibly rare and strange weather event.
1: <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's stunning. Um, I, um, I, I know that if you actually... I don't know if you, uh, many people have actually read the, the original Frankenstein, but when you actually read it and know the story behind why it was written, um, you can almost imagine you are in that cabin having cabin fever. Um, that was actually a shit villa, and I'm sure it was a very nice villa. But, <laughs> uh, but cabin fever being stuck indoors. And I know that Mary Shelley, for instance, wrote afterwards that uh, she... Um, it took some many days for her to have the inspiration behind Frankenstein. Everyone else was writing horror stories left, right, and centre, but she had a complete mental blank. And remember, she was only um, eighteen, I think, at the time. Um, and then she she had a waking nightmare, and uh, Frankenstein was born.
2: Wow. Well, what do we know about how much was understood about why the weather had, had changed and the, the climate had changed at the time? I mean, did they attribute it to that, that volcano then? Or? No,
1: not at all. In fact, it's quite interesting because Krakatoa, for instance, uh, a VEI, a volcanic Explosivity Index of 6, um, that was the first real big disaster reported um, around the world because uh, telegraphs had been uh, invented by then. But in 1815, uh, no, not at all. Um, in fact... Um, I've read, tried to read up quite a few reports about this, and uh, it was only because they were hearing artillery fire, for instance, um, fourteen, sixteen 1,600 kilometres away, um, that, uh, that they couldn't actually attribute that to anything. Um, And it was only uh, later that we actually knew the full story. Uh, Most of the inhabitants who were living around uh, Mount Sumbawa were wiped out by pyroclastic flows, uh, which are pretty nasty, um, uh, uh, sort of like hot gases escaping and rock escaping down the sides of a volcano. Um, So most of the population was actually killed by those. Um, By the way, pyroclastic flows uh, are are just featured in uh, Fallen Kingdom, the uh, Jurassic Park uh, movie, Mm. where Chris Pratt manages to outrun it and the diplodocuses and the stegosaurus. Yeah, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> I mean, they travel about eighty, hundred kilometres an hour. So, um, yeah, science in films is pretty dodgy. No, no, doesn't uh, Park, stretching the truth? No way. No way. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I, actually, a group of us often go to these uh, geological disaster movies to the cinema and laugh at how bad the science. You is. throw popcorn <laughs> at the screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what,
0: what else do we know about what happened to the local residents there in Indonesia at the time?
1: Uh, not a lot, but um but what's happened recently, well in in the last several years is um I understand that they're actually calling um the area on Sumbawa uh the Pompeii of the east because they're actually finding whole villages which have been um uh, smothered out by the volcanic eruption um, <clears throat> And uh, similar to Pompeii, um, it's it's sort of uh, covered the whole uh, area and it's been untouched since. Um, and so they're finding, um, um, I don't know a huge amount about this, but they're finding uh, villages and uh, people buried and um, uh, it must be pretty fascinating to be one of the people working over there.
0: Gee, time. so we might learn more.
1: Oh, I hope so. I very much hope so, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I mean, there's been, a, of course, an earthquake in, in Lombok recently and we know there's parts of the world that are, I guess susceptible to these types of volcanic or, or um, you know major earthquake events and so on. You're also, I understand, at this talk coming up uh, later this week, talking about Victoria's history and and history of volcanoes and that
1: sort of thing. What do we know about about what kind of lies in our own backyard? Oh, that's pretty cool. I mean, unfortunately, not many people in Victoria know about what a fantastic and diverse uh, volcanic history we have here in Victoria. Um, uh, we go to um, go to central and western parts of Victoria, and you'll notice they're pretty. Flat? flat okay you see those little pimples every now and again which is mount warren
0: up. heap things like that yeah, near Ballarat.
1: yeah yeah absolutely um, mount franklin mount eccles um <laughs> not the yu yanks they're not volcanoes everyone thinks they're volcanoes but they're not <laughs> um, but you go uh, uh we have um at the moment my colleague uh dr judy boyce uh, uh who i work with quite a lot uh she's identified along with some other workings um over 437 separate volcanic events in victoria and southeast and south australia um over the last 7.6 million years now, now I know seven point six billion years sounds like a long time, but if you take the amount of years and divide it by the amount of volcanoes, um, we get a volcanic eruption here in um, this part of southeastern Australia every ah, every ten thousand years or so. Um, the last one to erupt was um, uh, was Mount Gambier. Uh, and that's only four and a half to 5,000 years old. And even in Victoria, at Colac, North of Colac, we've got Red Rock, which is only 8,000 years old. So we do expect another volcanic eruption to occur uh, somewhere in, in western or central Victoria or Southeastern South Australia.
0: Um, I thought our volcanoes were dormant.
1: Oh, no, they're not. They're, uh, it's, it's a bit weird, the volcanoes in Victoria, because um, everyone attributes them to hotspots, but it's not actually a hotspot. It's not a hotspot volcano, so it's not like Hawaii. The reason we have uh, volcanoes in Victoria is because um, Australia is moving north at about uh, about six centimeters per year. Now, if you've ever been on a boat, you'll notice that um, as um, forget the engines, but as you're uh, as you're going forward in the boat, if you look at the back of the boat, you'll notice there's churned up water. Um, there's a wake left, if you if you if you know what I mean. Um, now, the same things happening to Australia. So we're basically moving northwards at six centimeters per year. The crust in the centre of Australia is thicker than the crust here in Victoria, and so. It's Sitting up these little convection currents or these little um, disturbed currents in the mantle, and that brings up pockets of mantle, pockets of magma, every you know every ten thousand years, and you get a volcanic eruption. Um, it's called monogenetic uh, volcanism, and uh, and here in southeast Australia, we've got one of the uh, one of the best preserved samples in the world. It's actually a really exciting place to do uh, volcanology. Sounds like here. it. And
0: so, what do we know about the influence of Volcanic eruptions here in Australia on storytelling because we know uh, indigenous Australians aboriginal um, communities go right back you know recently I think science scientists uh, archaeologists told us last week even that' sixty five thousand years there in arnhem land we 've got artifacts so yeah. What do
1: we know about that? We, we actually know a surprising lot. And this is uh, Judy Boyce and myself. This is one of our favourite things that we love so much about uh, science here in, in Victoria. And that is that um, if you look at Aboriginal Dreamtime stories, um, different tribes um, around or different mobs around uh, uh, Victoria have got their own kind of take on Dreamtime stories. Um, now, if we can find fire gods within the actual Dreamtime stories, that kind of tells us that the um, uh, that the local indigenous tribes must have seen um, something occurring in order to have that fire god now they often have quite convoluted and quite you know quite detailed stories about um uh the geomorphological features in their own backyard so you can take mount eccles for instance um mount eccles well budge bim as it's called uh basically has a very intricate um it's Dreamtime story associated with the formation of it which includes fire gods um, so we know that uh, we can use science um, to uh, date that volcano, Mount Eccles. It was a fissure type eruption about 30,000 years ago so similar to what happens in Iceland where basically a big crack opened in the earth and basically you had magma coming out or lava as we call it um, a little bit similar in a way to the fissures which opened in Hawaii uh, where you get those fire fountains coming out um, and so yeah the Aboriginal people saw that they, they didn't ov- obviously understand the science behind it, but they certainly incorporated into their dreamtime stories. Um, and so we know from that by dating it to 30,000 years that we must have had Aboriginal people living in Victoria, um, at least 30,000 years ago. Um, other places, um, uh, Mount Gambier, for instance, has the same kind of thing. Um, so I love that interconnection between religion, um, and between, um, you know, uh, pre uh, uh, so pre scientific ideas, um, how they're incorporated into these stories. And we can, we can use science to actually help us understand that a little bit more. Mm. Fascinating. Dr. James
2: Driscoll is our guest. We're talking to him ahead of a a talk he's giving this coming, this week, the 16th of August at Monash uh, for National Science Week called Three Years of Winter, the scientific story behind Shelley's Frankenstein. And I guess we've spoken about how um, Mount Tambora was a particularly significant and, and destructive volcanic event. Are there any others that potentially could be on the horizon that might be due to erupt anytime soon that could have a similar kind of um, effect on, on the climate or on the weather?
0: He's got his crystal ball there.
2: Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where is the most kind of volatile region? Yeah,
1: right? oh, well this is well, Indonesia's got 127 volcanoes so Indonesia is like a mecca for volcanologists and seismologists and uh, anything to do with, uh, with, with you know extreme earth events. Uh, Japan's the same where you have the whole island is basically one big volcano which are all overlapping each other um, but if you're talking about that, we're talking about super volcanoes. Mm. Super volcanoes now, forget the film 2012, it's not quite how it happens, okay, another bad geological movie, <laughs> and we won't talk about Dante's Peak either, because that's <laughs> atrocious, but anyway let's go back to Super Volcanoes, so the last one that erupted was about uh, about 75,000 years ago, 74,000 years ago uh, that's now October, um, in now in in Sumatra, and that was a eruption. Um eruption uh, it had a VEI of 7, uh, sorry of 8 uh, which means that over 1000 cubic c- c- uh, kilometers of rock actually went into the atmosphere probably caused uh, a- as Tambora did a global climatic catastrophe for at least several years. Um, it's actually been linked to um, uh, well, there's some science behind it and it's, it's arguable but they think it may have had such an effect on Earth that most of the population of Earth was, was white out and so we're mm-hmm. down to a few thousands or ten thousands of individuals. So some kind of genetic bottleneck um, associated with that. But a lot more work needs to be done on that. I know that some people are against it, some people are for it, and that's a really interesting um, mm-hmm. science. But but um, about Toba or Mount uh, Lake Toba as it's now called. Um, if you look at it on Google Earth, there's this huge gash which is 130 kilometres w- wide by about 40 kilometres uh, deep uh, uh, um, the other way, um, and so a massive. Um, hole was left in the earth after uh, Danawa toba erupted the next one to erupt well there's there's about 20 odd volcanoes which are classed as super volcanoes um, another one was for instance uh, Lake Topor in New Zealand um, that has erupted before super volcanically uh, we don't know where the next one will be um uh interestingly, the uh, the whole of Naples is actually built within a supervolcano. Um, not many yeah. people in Naples know that, um, and interestingly when when uh, people always worried about uh, Vesuvius, but when we look at Flagan Fields, which is the supervolcano there, I, I know I'd certainly be a bit more scared of the supervolcano, uh, but when would it erupt? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Yellowstone National Park as well is a supervolcano uh, that could, could potentially erupt, but th- th- we would probably give, be given some idea when these things would happen. Um, so for instance, um, super volcanoes are often triggered by just huge amounts of magma which are trying to reach the Earth's surface. Mm-hmm. Um, the trigger is debatable, but basically huge amounts of, of magma is underneath the Earth's surface and it's trying to reach, reach you know, the, the, the surface. Now, um, you would have some kind of um, probably uh, earthquakes associated with it, an earthquake earthquake swarm. Uh, you'd probably have some sort of... Um, an earthquake swarm.
0: An
1: earthquake swarm. So lots and lots of volcanoes... Are, lots and lots of earthquakes uh, basically over a, a extended period of time and that shows us that magma is kind of moving underneath the earth so these swarms of earthquakes they wouldn't probably be really big ones they'd just be lots and lots of small earthquakes which is showing that the magma is moving. The other thing is the ground will start to rise um, as that magma is rising and so you'll get some sort of inflation So
0: you get a bit of a warning.
1: Yeah. Because yeah. there
0: has been surprise earthquakes like in Christchurch for instance where people didn't oh, even really yeah. know they were on fault line let alone one that was going to do what it did yes. and change the kind of the way that the earth even the consistency of of yeah. the earth under their feet i mean that's really crazy so yeah. but but we will probably get a a warning
1: before yeah, but, one of these things goes. I hope so. <laughs> oh, but I you should mentioned Christchurch. I do a lot of my research in Christchurch and the river systems there. Um, but Christchurch, the reason why we didn't know there was a fault line there is because the, uh, the Southern Alps are, are rising so quickly through tectonic forces that there's a vast amount of erosion uh, occurring. And so all of that material from the, the mountains is actually being fed by uh, river systems uh, along the Canterbury Plains. And so all of the fault traces which have uh, happened over uh, through you know, geological history... We've been covered by pebbles and rock. So we had no idea at all there was a, a, a large fault so proximal um, to Christchurch until obviously it happened in 20, 2010, 2011. Um, and yeah, it's, as you can see, because people didn't realize that there was a fault line then, it meant that uh, people didn't build their houses uh, sufficiently for uh, earth to be earthquake proof. Um, and also, the other fact, the reason it was so devastating is because it was so close to the CBD and it's such a shallow depth that all of that energy from the earthquake basically just went straight into Christchurch mm. and uh, killed 185 people, I think. So, yeah. It's very, yeah and they're still rebuilding. Upsetting. They are indeed.
0: Well, you, you, you've only got the event down from 7pm until 8pm, but you're going to need longer <laughs> I think, there's so much story there um, Thanks for coming into Triple R My absolute uh, pleasure. Dr. James Driscoll he's over at Monash's School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment um, the event which is on the 16th which is what day, is that Thursday? Thursday Thursday night, 7pm three years of winter, the scientific story behind Shelley's Frankenstein um, you should book I think or do people? Have yeah, to book? there's
1: an event a bright page that yep. you should go to to book yeah.
0: and um, you can catch James there and ask any question that we forgot to ask this morning you can get it on Thursday night and we haven't talked about the NBN for a while but a story over the weekend got us interested apparently if you decide to upgrade your connection to fibre to the premises which not everybody has uh, you pay the full price of that upgrade but if someone on your street's already invested and paid the full price and the fibre runs past your place, you just get connected to it. Um, so with the current model, you can randomly pay a fortune for fibre to the premises or randomly benefit from someone else having paid a fortune before you. Uh, Tom Salston, Digital Rights Watch um, board member, is here to talk about how consumer investment is shaping the NBN. And uh sounds like Tom... Uh, some of us are doing a good deed for the other people in our neighbourhood um, but also for ourselves if you've got the cash.
3: Yeah I mean if, if you're willing to spend that money on getting your house upgraded you can um, and that's great for the neighbours but I think it, it would feel pretty frustrating you know to find then that your neighbours are getting the same connection a whole lot cheaper just in that way it's really frustrating when you buy something only to find it in the sale two weeks later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well there's that side of it I suppose but um I was thinking with the NBN that, you know, it's a national network and it's supposed to, I suppose, essentially be the same. And this has been the great criticism of the NBN that it was supposed to be fibre for everybody pretty much and now it's fibre for some people and not for others unless you've got the money, it sounds like.
3: Exactly. And and that's what the the NBN was designed to prevent. Um, It was always designed as a... Properly broadband network that would deliver very fast internet to homes over fiber. Um, so the current state of it, where it is treated very much as a product where you can buy a better connection, like not even a better connection, just the original connection that you were meant to be getting uh, at the expense of one of the slightly less uh, good connections is largely a result of kind of political interference with the NBN and hobbling it so that it's no longer able to offer that uh, very equal access for everyone.
2: Yeah, it, it seems to kind of go against the principle as much as, as I understood it of what the NBN was kind of meant to be when it was first hatched as a, as a national broadband plan in so far as, you know, we've already paying for this as, as taxpayers, yet now it seems that you, your ability to access the fastest speeds is to some extent contingent on how much money you have.
3: Absolutely. Um you know the the national broadband network is a piece of strategically important infrastructure for australia we are a, a an economy that is driven by knowledge work um we're very geographically uh, spread out so being able to reach into the regions and rural australia is really important and those are the problems that the national broadband network was meant to address um doing that um in a way that is kind of product driven in a way where spending more to get better access is entirely incongruous with that that vision. Uh, the, the network is, um, a national resource in that same way that the road network is, is a national resource. You don't get a better road because you pay more. We all get to use the same roads. Similarly, having a national broadband network that is high bandwidth and available to everyone is of value to everyone and to society as a whole.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's why it's called the internet superhighway. Yeah, and I I, I mean, the news report I saw over the weekend is a woman in west of Melbourne tried to get her neighbours to pitch in. So it was going to cost her six or seven grand to upgrade her connection. She asked the neighbours. They weren't interested in, in... in contributing which is fair enough they might not want fast internet or they might not have the cash or they might be renting or something like that she upgraded it but then all of those people now have the fast internet because the fiber runs past their house and then they just get connected to it and so there's this kind of a strange thing where you can be a good samaritan um, but that's kind of a strange way to grow a network Yeah, So half a street could have a really good one because there was one person willing to invest, but the other half won't have it.
3: Exactly. And as as we're seeing with the rest of the NBN rollout, you can be on the wrong side of the street and still be on crummy old ADSL um, or on the right side of the street and have proper fibre to your premises. So it is very much the luck of the draw at that point. If you happen to be living near someone wealthy and public minded uh, who's willing to upgrade your street, then that's that's lovely for you.
2: Yeah, it seems really kind of, I, I guess, unfair or undemocratic in, in the, the, the type of access people will have who are connected um, via fibre to the node, as I understand it as well. I think I've read that only around a quarter of those connected via fibre to the node will be able to access those kind of higher download speeds. Do we know kind of why that's the case or why certain areas might have greater access for those higher speeds over others, given that they have the similar kind of
3: access via that fibre-to-the-node infrastructure? Yeah, so there is investment to be made in the the internals of the network itself so not just the piece of fiber cable that will go between your house and the network but also the internals of the network and moving that data around uh, the fastest pieces of equipment where we're talking about gigabit transmission into the home they're pretty expensive so those are not being put in early those will be rolled out later as the network grows mm.
0: is there a better way to do this tom Well,
3: I have to confess, I think the original plan of just put fibre into everyone's home was a pretty good one. And the idea of putting a profit motive behind the MBN was an error. Like, we don't put profit motive behind the roads, or rather when we do, it turns out to be a mistake. And it's turning out to be a similar mistake here. Um, Building networks, like, they are a natural monopoly in the economic sense of the world. There is no good reason to do that um, unless you are a state seeking to build infrastructure for your population. Um so that is how we should be treating it is is just a a thing that we build in that same way that we build power lines and we build um water networks and we build roads it's part and parcel of that rather than a product that you can choose to have a better or a worse version of
2: mm, the, the coalition kind of sold its revised version of the n b n um on the basis that it would cost a whole lot less for for taxpayers. I'm sure a lot of people would, would remember that, but given these kind of problems with the rollout and also the the blowout in in how much it's cost to Advance the NBN. Do you, where do you think kind of the, the electorate sees this? Do you think people are kind of frustrated with how this has played out?
3: I think definitely those people who are technologically minded, um, younger people, people who want to use Netflix. So an increasing proportion of the of the um, of the country are finding the NBN not meeting their needs, either because they don't have it or because they have it and it's not high enough bandwidth. Um, so hopefully those people will start to see that this is a really important thing and they will start to demand policy that strengthens the NBN rather than trying to push a, a low-budget, you know, Tesco value version onto us.
2: Yeah, it, it sounds like, I mean, just from speaking to a, f- a few people, and I think it's been mentioned kind of in the media as well, that Australia is kind of renowned for having crappy internet. Is, is that the
3: case? Uh, it is, and it's getting worse. Australia is slipping down the league tables of which countries have the best broadband. Mm. Um, I can't tell you exactly where we are, but it's not very high.
0: Great. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Sulston's with everyone. us, Digital Rights Watch. who's um, a board member over there. And I suppose when it comes to, you know, slipping down this internet speed table, I mean, some people will be right up there and other people won't be. And this idea that all of us you know potentially in the future could work from home it's going to boost the economy we're going to have you know smart kids that are going to be logging into school i don't know all of these things Our medical imagery and uh, imaging and so is this now not going to happen for most people in australia you think these kinds of access and this economic potential
3: and i would like to think that it is still going to happen. We're just going a very long and contrived way about that via, you know, a series of governments that are not investing it because they are uh, motivated by media control that is very much against the existence of a national broadband network. Um, you can understand that if you have fiber at your home and you can stream all of your media over the internet from a variety of providers that provides... it at uh, that poses a considerable economic threat to existing corporate media models that depend on you paying a very high, for instance, cable TV subscription.
0: Yeah, it's sort Mm. of depressing when you think about it like that, isn't it? But what about this idea of neighbourhood action in this regard? So, the potential is there. So, it's actually new to me over the last couple of months that you could invest your own hard-earned to get A very good connection and maybe it's going to cost you quite a few grand to do it but if you had a street that would pull together you actually can share those costs apparently um so i mean do you think we're likely to to see that happen a little bit more
3: yeah i think it feels like a reasonable thing to be doing um also, what we are seeing is people doing the same, but not necessarily with the NBN. So community broadband projects similar to community solar energy projects or community gardens, where an area will club together uh, and effectively found their own ISP and buy bandwidth from one of the larger producers and run the you know, Sunshine Coast small um, uh, fibre-to-the-home ISP. So we're seeing a number of those. Some of those linked to the NBN, some of them not.
0: Right. So how does that how does that work? I mean, you can actually design it yourself or there's kind of how to's on online is there to to how to do this in your area. Like if you were in Blackburn or something and you wanted really fast internet for your shopping strip, you could go and do Exactly.
3: So you can use any, any one of the providers of, of fiber. So MBN is not the only fiber providing company. Um, you know, there are others like Telstra and TPG. They will lay fiber to your, you know, your apartment block or to your home or to your street. Uh, and in a similar way with the MBN's, um, model, you can, you can pay for that and then split the costs amongst a group of you. Uh, you might need to install some equipment and pay an engineer to do some of that work as well. But that's a model that we're seeing springing up, not just in Australia, but elsewhere around the world as well.
2: Yeah, I- is that being done, I-, I guess, in response to the, <laughs> I don't know, frustration that that hasn't been available to us when probably it, it should have been on-, on the original plans of the NBN?
3: Yeah, it's seeking to, to meet an unmet need Mm. so much like community solar is meeting the fact that not enough of our power comes from solar and people can't put panels on their roofs because they're renters um, these projects are springing up because there is a huge latent demand for proper broadband and very few avenues to get it Mm.
0: gee and you'd think that that would sort of ring some alarm bells wouldn't you if you're Co that people are actually doing their own thing and not connecting necessarily to your network because that was part of the idea wasn't it that we would all be on this network and we're all forced on it and all our phones are going on it and all of our internet's on it but if people are actually going their own way
3: yeah, I mean I, I imagine as a company that would be a, a threat but I think it's a minor one because the rollout is still so long and so slow that the people who are doing community broadband are realising they might not get fibre for some number of years
0: so do it now yeah Pay for it yourself, pull together. Very interesting. And so if people want to find out more about that, I've not heard of that Tom. Where, where do you, where do you go to get more information about it if you want to get your street hooked up in this sort of a way
3: that's a really good question and i reckon you probably have to search on the internet (laughs) (laughs) with your incredibly fast internet (laughs) speeds (laughs)
2: um
0: uh, thanks for coming in thanks and um tom sulston he's with digital rights watch uh all sorts of information on their website but maybe not that information about the um isp upgrades uh and um yeah uh You can find Digital Rights Watch online and um, that news report I was talking about you can also find online and it's a very interesting unfolding story there about the patchwork of the NBN. Uh, The government's National Energy Guarantee still has a heartbeat after the Coag Energy Minister's meeting on Friday, but who knows if it still will after tomorrow. Uh, The Energy and Environment Minister, Josh Frydenberg, has to get the policy through his own party room full of recalcitrance, um, and then we'll move to the next phase, which is actually to take it back to COAG, and uh, where Lily D'Ambrosio, who's our Victorian Energy Minister, is sus on it. Um, Giles Parkinson from Renew Economy, uh, which is an online news site, has been keeping across this, as well as many other things in the renewables industry, and uh, Giles, it's good to have you back on Triple R. Um, yeah, that's Yeah, and last time we spoke, um, your take was that the NEG, as it's known, um, was a, a pretty benign reform. If it comes into place, that we're going to meet our emissions targets, you know, what we promised under Paris, with or without it. Um, anything changed with your view since then?
4: Yeah, look, I think it has actually. Um, look, the hope of, the best hope of the NEG at that time when I last spoke to you was that it would do no harm. Um, I think now, looking at, um, some of the more details that have emerged over the last few weeks is that it could actually do more harm than good, so not really so benign, and that's because of some of the little hidden traps in the legislation and the, just the sheer complexity of it, and, um, and what have you. Um, it really has sort of hit this sort of roadblock now. Um, as you mentioned, Lily D'Ambrosio, the Victorian Energy Minister, and Queensland the ACT are really holding out, saying, look, this is not acceptable that we have a policy, which is a do-nothing policy. If we're going to have a policy, let's make sure it does something. And chief in their concern is the ability to make it flexible, because we know it's not going to do anything at current limits. What what is not acceptable is that this low ball trajectories that are sort of dialed into the current policy are kept in place until 2030. That's just completely unacceptable to sort of defies the future. So they're just asking, look, let's, be, let's have the ability to review this every three years. Uh, rather than every 10 years. Um, but um, that's been resisted by the coalition and it's been resisted particularly fiercely by the coalition party room. Now it looks like we're going to have the extraordinary scenes of many people, the backbenchers, the Tony Ammons, the Barty B. Joyce's and some of the other people actually calling for Australia to sort of abandon any emissions reduction, to exit the Paris Agreement. And in a bid to try and get them to the table, Malcolm Turnbull is offering something perfectly ridiculous like a new coal-fired power generator. We will fund and support a new coal-fired power generator, but please just let us sign up to this policy and then we can proclaim peace in our time, etc, etc, etc. All complete nonsense, of course, and it's really disturbing that we're actually having these sort of discussions in this sort of frame, but um, that's where we are.
2: Yeah, and, and these debates and, and heavily politicised arguments have been going for, for years, I mean, at least the past decade, if we think back to the carbon pollution reduction scheme and, and Tony Abbott's kind of wrecking of that, but given what where where we're at currently and and where we might head in the next few months or, or years even with these negotiations over the NEG. What sort of impact might that have on the renewables sector, Giles?
4: Uh, look, well, if you if you believe the modelling of the Energy Security Board, um, their modelling suggests that when large wind and solar projects will come to a crashing halt around about 2020 or 2021. If there is no NEG, but even if there is a NEG, it will still come in a crashing halt by 2022. Now, look, um, some of that modelling does does seem ridiculous, but it is the modelling that is being used to argue for the scheme, to argue its position that it will lower prices. Um, that's the scenario that they're laying out before us, and. If if you think what international investors and developers would be thinking of that, then they'd be terrified of the prospect. Um, yeah, you know, fortunately, we do have some of the state-based schemes like Victoria and Queensland, um, which should get some generation for, but um, forward. But you know, we really should be embracing this. I mean, you know, it is not disputed by anyone who's reasonable that wind and solar offer by far the cheapest, um, um, the, the, the cheapest form of bulk energy. And the Australian Energy Market Operator, in its very good report, it released a couple of weeks. Ago about this integrated system plan has made the point that even piling solar and storage one on one on top of each other will still be cheaper than new coal fired power stations. So, you know, the idea that we're even thinking about a new coal fired power station is just bizarre and just highlights the fact, as you said, Dylan, you know, this policy has been hamstrung by this sort of partisan debate and this sort of craziness for more than a decade, and yet there actually seems no sign that it has been resolved, or even if it's going to be resolved, and even if we have the MIG in place, there is still such a divergence of of positions between the major parties over what we should be doing about emissions, and that's the crucial thing, it really doesn't matter what mechanism we have, we've just got to get closer to each other um, about what we should be doing about emissions and encouraging renewables.
0: So, I mean, we know that, as you say, Victoria and also Queensland and the ACT have strong reservations about signing up to the NEG, particularly before it's settled through the coalition party room. So we've got that sort of politicking and I suppose there's some some real concern in there as well. What about federal labour? Because potentially it could pass through the House and also the Senate if federal labour supports it, even if half the coalition doesn't.
4: Yeah, look, it's an interesting position. So what's going to happen is that the actual rules, um, the actual mechanism of the um, of the National Energy Guarantee has got to be endorsed by the states. So it's got to be unanimous because under the, sort of, the rather bizarre and oblique ways of the national electricity market, the states basically decide the rules and it actually goes through legislation in the South Australian government of all places and then all the other states copy it um, word for word and that's the national electricity rules so that's got to be approved by all the states um, and then the actual emissions component which becomes like legislation that um, is then goes through parliament but um, so it would be interesting to see to what extent labour can, can block that or, or, or massage it so it can actually get better targets. What the states are saying is that they don't want to sign off on the mechanism... And give the government a blank check to put in whatever emissions target it wants because it's very suspicious of this mechanism. It may accept the mechanism if it has to, but as long as there's flexibility because it doesn't want to lock into something that doesn't do anything if nothing is to be done, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, look, look it's, it's kind of doing my head in two. I'm
4: not too. Sure whether, I'm not too sure. Look, I mean, the first thing to, to, to note about the uh, National Energy Guarantee is, one, look, it is basically a kind of current thing, a do nothing policy, it is also incredibly complex. I mean, probably a handful of people would truly understand it because it is so damn complex because... It's, I mean, you mentioned, Dylan, um, the fact that, you know, Tony Abbott um, pushed back on the CPRS. If you Mm. think about our policy, everything has been done or canned because of Tony Abbott. So, he knocked the CPRS in the head. When he got into government, he killed the carbon price. He tried to kill the renewable energy target. He dismantled the climate council and tried to kill the um, climate change authority. An emissions intensity scheme was rejected by Malcolm Turnbull because of the influence of Tony Abbott on the backbench. A clean energy target, proposed by Alan Finkel was rejected by Malcolm Turnbull because of Tony Evelyn's front bench and the NEG, it's really principal design feature is to try and bury the idea that abatement has a price. So it might be easy to bury carbon but you can't bury a carbon price without the enormous complexity of these hidden contracts and these other things. Basically with no, 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 no other intention Um, than to make a price invisible and that just results in this incredible complexity and confusion Um, it really is an unsatisfactory position and now despite all of that he still doesn't like it, so who knows where we're going to end up in after tomorrow's
2: coalition party room. That's, that's right. He continues to, to have an influence even from the backbench. We're speaking with Giles Parkinson uh, from A New Economy all about the current negotiations, ongoing negotiations around the National Energy Guarantee. And, and as far as I understand, Giles, and you've kind of alluded to it, so Victoria is insisting that the target, the emissions reduction target, can be revised with reg- regulation rather than legislation, which makes it easier to kind of adopt a more ambitious target and also calling for an assurance the target can only be increase, of course we have a state election coming up this year in Victoria is there a sense that these negotiations might kind of go beyond that and the coalition might be waiting for potentially a change of government to to make the climate a bit easier for them?
4: Look that could be um, yes and and, and look I think that's that's making it sort of difficult and sensitive for the Victorian government because you know uh, as we've seen for the last 10 years it's not really about the policy of the the thing; it's actually about the politics and how this plays out in mainstream media etc and um, you know just to take a bit of a break back to mainstream media I think they've actually reported this rather appallingly I think they've sort of fallen very much into government line um, just was saying as a matter of fact that this policy will reduce emissions and will lower prices, well we don't know either of those to be true. In fact, it's probably likely that they're not going to be true. Um, look, Victoria's got, a, 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 they've got about four demands on the table. The most important one, I think, is the flexibility. I think whether it's going to be legislation or, or, or regulation, I think they can probably negotiate that one away. Um, the additionality thing is probably um, going to be, ne- could be negotiated away. The flexibility, I think, has to be the important one. As for the timing, yes, they're trying to get an agreement within the month. If they don't get it really by the end of September, Victoria goes into caretaker period. So you might actually be waiting for the middle of next year because then you've got Christmas, then you've got January, no one's back then. Then you've got New South Wales elections, so they'll be in caretaker period and unable to make a decision. Then you're going to have a federal election, um, so the whole thing might just sort of disappear. Mm.
0: There you go. <laughs> and I think, I mean, and I suppose just to, to switch over to the impact on industry, because I know that you watch that very closely with Renew Economy, particularly the renewables side of the, the energy industry. What, what's the sense there? Are, are the companies getting behind the neg or, or what, what do you do when you're a, a wind company or a solar company when these things are going on?
4: Yeah, look, there's a, there's a, there's a real division, actually. Look, most of them are really busy at the moment because they're building so much, um, because of the, renew, the renewable energy targets. So, you know, they're all sort of all these, you know, there must be about 40 odd projects being built at the moment and not yet complete and they'll be complete over the next year or two. The ones looking forward are really divided. Some people will say, okay, well, maybe the meg and maybe we can adjust it in the future. Some people are saying, no, let's not have the NEG because really it's just a minefield. It just does nothing. Um, it's, it, we're, we're better off without it. So, um, You know, they're in a bit of a quandary. Some of the biggest um, international investors have warned that if you do have the neck, if you do have this outlook, um, as modelled by the um, Energy Security Board, then, then we're off. We're out of here. We're going to go somewhere else. Um, and, and that'll be, we've seen this twice before in the last 15 years where we've had a big investment in renewables and then it's been brought to a halt mostly by, co- well, both times by coalition policy um, in 2006 and again in 2014 with the Abbott government. And what happens then is that people pack up and they go and all the momentum is lost and the, and, and the expertise is lost and the capital equipment is, is lost because there's lots of big cranes here in Australia at the moment putting in wind turbines and doing other things. Now, people will pack their bags they'll take them back overseas and it's really expensive and hard and time-consuming to get them back again. So, you know, we're, we're just in this midst of this amazing momentum at the moment, putting in new wind and solar. The costs are coming down. It's getting really efficient. People are really interested in battery storage. There's pumped hydro schemes being considered. We want this to continue because we want this transition to happen as smoothly and efficiently and as well-planned as we can possibly do it. Um, the idea of just sort of trying to bring it to a halt is just perfectly ridiculous and will have all sorts of unintended consequences mostly on the consumers who will end up one way paying more for electricity than they should, and they're already doing that already.
0: And, I mean, one thing, we were just talking um, before we got you on the phone, Giles, about the NBN and how consumers, if they pitch in their own um, thousands of dollars, they can upgrade their connection. And I suppose this is happening too with... with um, investments, consumer investments in solar and, and batteries for some households that you can put in your own and then over time reap the benefits through lower bills because you've made the upfront commitment. Are you thinking that we'll see more of that, that, that people will be continuing, con- continuing to invest in rooftop solar in particular?
4: Absolutely, we're seeing, rec- we're seeing record uptake of rooftop solar, not just by households, but also small businesses. So people in industrial areas and things like that are looking at the rooftops and thinking, well, let's throw a whole bunch of solar on there and we will reduce our costs significantly. You're also seeing that in large manufacturing companies now, so you're seeing some steelworks in Victoria, some steelworks in Wyathe, um with Sanjeev Gupta, they're looking to put their own solar in. Um, there's a zinc refinery up in North Queensland um, called Sun Metals, they're doing it. Um, there's Cult United Brewery, are going 100% solar with um, by, by the end of this year. Um, a whole bunch of businesses are all turning solar and, and that's great. One of the things that, that really needs to happen um, is to ensure that the people on lower incomes, people in rental households, people in apartments can also tap into solar and that really just comes around by just being clever about it and having different sort of business plans that sort of offer zero, um, zero, zero cost so you actually sort of provide a loan or or, or you take it as a reduction in your bills there's all sorts of different ways of doing it so people who haven't got the money to pay five or ten thousand dollars up front can still benefit from having solar and it could be community owned it could be a central thing if if you're living in an apartment there's all sorts of different ways of doing that and we need to be able to encourage that to make sure that everyone can partake in this and and not, not just the people who can afford it
0: yeah and also work around the politicians by the sounds
4: yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, well, look, it's interesting to note that um, Federal Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg has not yet got uh, rooftop solar in his house. I'm not too sure what his problem is. Um, you know, well, his I mean, I mean, electorate,
0: right? I actually looked once, and his electorate has um, among the lowest uptake of rooftop solar anywhere in the country. So there you go.
4: Who knows well, why? that's probably... That, that's probably a, um, um, yes. Um, in, in the rich inner city suburbs actually have been the, the, the lowest uptake of, um, of rooftop solar. So there you go. It's more of the middle income suburbs. Um, you yeah, know, further out, they've been, um, been the greatest adopters.
0: Yeah. Thank you for talking to us. It's always good no to have your insights. <laughs> uh, we'll catch you again for another instalment
4: don't no worry.
0: Thanks for having me. Thanks, Charles. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.